How's everyone? Good. Good to see all of you. Glad that you have made it out to First Colony Christian Church on a kind of cloudy, rainy day. Um, but the good news is you came and the rain stopped. So I think there might be some sort of parallel there. Okay. Um, so I need everybody in this room to come on every Sunday so that it no longer rains until we get in a draft situation and then we'll have to shut down the doors of the church for a little bit. Um, my name is Mike Skinner. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. So happy that you have joined us this morning. Um, we are currently in a sermon series over the book of Mark, and that's how we like to preach around here, is to pick a book of the Bible and go through it verse by verse. Um, we've spent over a year in the Gospel of Mark. It's the shortest Gospel, um, so you're welcome. Uh, you could have picked a different one. Uh, and we have now, including today, four more Sundays, only four more Sundays. For me, doing book studies like this is, in a way, like becoming a getting a new friend, um, you know, being uh, acquainted with a new author and a new story and, and having a new companion to walk through your faith journey with. And so um, for me, it's sad in a sense when we come to the end of these series. Um, I'll miss walking with Mark uh, every Sunday. Um, so we've got four more left to enjoy. Um, so if you would, with me, um, open up to the book of Mark. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardback underneath the seat around you. You're more than welcome to grab one of those. We'll be in Mark chapter 14. We'll pick up in verse 53. We are getting to the kind of climax of the Gospel of Mark and all the Gospels, um, where the, the kind of action takes place that will form the heart of the Christian message and the Christian community um, that has been anticipated and foreshadowed throughout the Gospel. Um, today, um, we pick off where we left. Uh, if you remember and you were with us, we left off Jesus uh, had his last meal with the disciples where he instituted the practice of the Eucharist or communion, um, saying he was about to die uh, as a Passover sacrifice for them to be freed. Um, and then he says, um, you all will betray me uh, tonight. And sure enough, Jesus comes and is arrested and all the disciples but one flee. And so we pick it up now um, where we left off with Jesus being arrested. And, and this morning we'll be looking at the trials of Jesus. He goes through two primary trials. One before the Jewish authorities, and then he goes to the Roman authorities who actually have the power to execute a sentence. Um, as we read through these trials, the, my opening question for you would be to think about how you have in the past or might naturally respond if someone started accusing you of doing certain things. Um, if someone started accusing you of doing negative things that perhaps you were innocent of, how you might react. I think we all, uh, if you're like me, and I just project myself on everybody, so you, we have this internal HR department, right, in our mind. Um, and we're very quick and ready and capable of defending ourselves, right? You said this, actually, it's this person's fault, this person's fault, Here's the story from a different angle. And then, right, we go and hire like a staff. But not with money, but like, hey, you know the right story, right? And you'll back me up on this and this and this. Um, and, and we react to accusations by trying to defend ourselves and trying to avoid um, any negative damage on our reputation or any possible consequences. We'll see that Jesus' reaction is not like that. Uh, and it uh, is perhaps something for us to think about this morning as we watch Jesus face his time of accusation. I've recently been accused um, 
quite often in the past few weeks of doing something that I've not had to do, that I've not done, that I'm not committed, I'm innocent of, uh, and I've had to defend myself. You know, word gets around in church communities when um, exciting things are happening at a church. And um, some of you know, some, some may not know, you know, at FCQ we uh, just pay off our mortgage, and so we're now debt-free. Um, the church is um, growing and vibrant, and ministries are starting, and we're reaching to the community in ways we've never done before. Um, I'm continuing to come on as a full-time pastor uh, and, and be able to better lead the church in that role. Um, and so it's funny, you know, when things are just so-so, you don't hear from a lot of people, but all of a sudden when you pay off a mortgage, you start getting phone calls and emails um, from <laughs> denomination leaders and other pastors and it's some congratulations, right? And it's also some, hey, let me tell you about this fund I have that maybe you'd like to put that money you were paying the mortgage um, towards. Um, and I've had to consistently say, you're blaming the wrong person. Um, what we've done at FC Cubed, what's happened at FC Cubed is not my fault. Um, I can't take responsibility for it um, because it's, it's y'all's fault, right? Um, it's our community's fault. Uh, uh, it's it's the leadership and volunteer uh, of people throughout the years. It's the um, community that we have uh, here as a church. Uh, it's the committedness that we have from our members um, that has allowed every everything good um, from God's hand to be fulfilled here at the church and has put us in this place where um, not only myself and I think other leaders in the church, but even people who have never even heard of the church now see us and realize 2016 is wide open for us. I mean, we're on the verge of doing huge things that we maybe can't even imagine um, right now. Uh, and so I um, wanted to relay that to you um, and wanted to say that you are getting me in a little bit of trouble. Uh, and <laughs> I've been trying to shift all the blame off uh, onto you guys. Um, but usually when we're accused, particularly of a negative thing, right, we react in anger, um, we react um, defensively. We'll see that Jesus, for the most part, is either silent or very courageous, uh, a man of few words, in face of his uh, accusers. So if you read with me, Mark chapter 14, we'll pick it up in verse 53. This is our last of our Mark and sandwiches. Um, so Mark likes to tell stories like sandwiches. He'll start with one story, he'll interrupt it with another story, and go back to a similar story. Um, like bread, meat, and bread. Um, now, if you're tired of me explaining that um, over and over again, good news, it's the last time I'll ever have to do it. Um, but this is also the last time we'll see the story. Mark does this because he wants us to compare that middle story to the outer stories. So the outer stories are, as we'll see, the Jewish trial and the Roman trial. And then inside of the sandwich, there's this story about Peter. And Mark, I think, wants us to see it as perhaps Peter's own little trial. Uh, even though it's not an official trial uh, in itself. So um, with that in mind, I hope I haven't given away too much of the good stuff. Let's read um, in Mark chapter 14, verse 53. And they led Jesus, he's just been arrested, um, the naked man ran away, um, to the high priest, Caiaphas. He's not named here, but this is the highest leader in Jerusalem. Um, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Um, and Peter had followed them at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Peter is the very um, right, rambunctious, boisterous one. He's the one who told Jesus, you're wrong. I won't leave you. I'll go to your side and die with you. 
Um, all the other disciples have left. Peter follows, but not quite as a disciple should be following. He follows, but at a distance. And instead of following Jesus to be with him, which was Jesus' original command to Peter, he follows Jesus at a distance and is with these guards outside, warming themselves by the fire as Jesus goes through these trials. Um, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Um, Let's just say for a moment, they've been trying to kill Jesus since chapter 3. They've been plotting about this. At least a year. It's fairly remarkable how ill-equipped they are when they finally have the chance. Right? When they finally have him before the highest Jewish authority in Jerusalem, um, and they can't even find people to speak against him. Um, We read on. um, For many were bearing false witness against him, but even that, their testimonies didn't agree. They didn't even have the same stories. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying... We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that's made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Jesus has pronounced judgment over the temple, um, but in Mark's gospel, he's not said anything like this, about three days in his hands. In John's gospel, he does make a claim like this. Um, So you can kind of see, right, they've just kind of all garbled up everything that Jesus has been about and has been teaching, and they can't even get it right for what is, let's be honest, a kangaroo court. Right? I mean, this is not a real trial. This is not a, like an actual, let's look at the evidence and see what's going on. This is a, let's just do what we need to do so that we can kill this guy and finally have him no longer be a problem for us. Um, if you look at Jewish trials, what they're supposed to do, this breaks almost all of the rules. It's not supposed to be at night. It's supposed to be during the day. It's not supposed to be uh, at, at someone's house. It's supposed to be at the official council. It has to have people to test against him. You have to have defendants against him as well. It can't be on a holiday or a Sabbath. This is Sabbath and a holiday. Um, so make no mistake, right? This is just a kangaroo court. But even then, they have a remarkably difficult time in even coming up with enough things to get him accused at this, this kangaroo court. Um, the high priest stood up after all of this kind of failed attempts to try Jesus, and he asked Jesus directly questions. He says, what is it? Um, he says, have you no answer to make? Jesus, I'm sure, is like, about what? Like, these guys can't even, they don't even know one story. What am I supposed to respond to? Have you, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And Jesus, again, remained silent. And he had no answer. Um, you know, I imagine this scene is a very tense and dramatic one. With Jesus almost having this very stoic, powerful commanding presence of the room, right? And while swirling accusations are going all around him, and while he's arrested, while he knows the fate that's going to be coming his way, um, he sits there quietly. And even in the face of questions, direct questioning um, by Caiaphas, the highest Jewish power um, in the land, and Jesus looks at him, almost as if to say, is this really, is really that we're doing it? Is this really what's going on? Almost as if to say, your questions aren't worth the dignity of an answer. Right? But then Jesus does something uncharacteristic for this trial and for the trials, for the other trial. He speaks. Finally, after not being able to get anything from the testimony and the accusations and Jesus not answering about those, the high priest asks him directly, the question that they're all wondering. 
Are you the Christ? Are you the Jewish Messiah? Are you the King, the Son of the Blessed? And you'll remember throughout the Gospel of Mark, multiple times, Jesus has told people to not tell anybody that he is the Messiah. This is called a messianic secret. Um, something's happened and someone will say, you're the Messiah. And he'll say, yeah, but it's not time for word to get out now. This is the dramatic turning point in Mark's gospel, where Jesus looks at the face of the man who can kill him, Caiaphas, the high priest, and he's been asked point blank, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And feel the power in Jesus' response. It gives me goosebumps. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, notice a couple things. First here, Jesus has just incriminated himself. (coughs) Again, we get the sense that Jesus' death is not something that happens to him accidentally. He's predicted it, um, and he walks the plank right here. He knows this is is the nail in the the coffin. Um, And he boldly, I think, in the Garden of Gethsemane, his voice might have been wavering as he was praying, I think now it's fair to say, I think a good guess would be his voice is very bold and confident. He looks him straight in the eyes and pierces through his soul and says, you ask me a straight question, let me give you a straight answer. I am. Not only that, but then he brings together two biblical quotations from Psalm 110 and Daniel 7:13 about the Messiah. Um, he says, not only that, but you're going to see me seated at the right hand of power. You're going to see me share in God's throne and come on the clouds. This is from Daniel's prophecy of the Messiah, um, that he will be given the identity of God himself and will be vindicated against all of his enemies. Jesus is in this answer answering all of the questions they have, explicitly and implicitly. He says, am I the Messiah? The answer is yes. Am I a prophet? The answer is yes. Am I right about what's going to happen to you in the temple? The answer is yes. Will you see me vindicated and proven right in public for all to see? Yes. This is how everything is going to go down. Ball's in your court now. Jesus has, by his answer, given them the ticket they needed to kill him which was a political one. Um, They needed to be able to tell the Romans he was a king, or claimed to be a king, Messiah, uh, so that they could crucify him, as the Romans did, for revolution, revolutionaries. Um, But Jesus has also now given them Jewish ammo. Um, He's spoken uh, so much um, in terms of identity, sharing identity with um, God himself, um, that he can now be accused, I think rightfully, of blasphemy. Um, so now, not only uh, will the Romans have reason to pay attention to this case, um, but the Jewish people themselves will have a reason um, to be able to be convinced to turn on Jesus. Um, remember the crowd was shouting his praises when he walked in just a few days ago. Um, he gives them ammo here, I think, for them to shout something else, which we'll see later on in this passage. Um, the high priest tore his garments and said, We need nothing else. You've heard us blasphemy. What's your decision? Big surprise, they all condemned him as deserving death. Jesus receives the death penalty from this kangaroo court. 
And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And Herod, in some of these accusations, were the um, claims that Jesus was a false prophet. He's leading the Israelites astray. Um, Jesus goes through the trial and then some beating. Um, he spit on. Um, they blindfold him. They're striking him. Um, the context here in other Gospels, seemingly they're saying, tell us who hit you. Right? You're that smart. You know the temple's going to be destroyed. All these kind of things. Who just, who just broke your nose? Who just knocked out two of your teeth? Tell us these things. Through all of it, Jesus is silent. Right? Um, ironically, while Jesus is being accused of being a false prophet, one of his prophecies is coming true. He's told Peter, you're going to deny me three times before this night is over. And to that story, Mark takes us. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. This is kind of an insult, okay? Remember, Nazareth is up in Galilee. This is the hick town of Israel. Nothing good comes from Galilee, right? Um, I can't pick a city in Texas because I'll offend somebody. (laughs) (laughs) I just can't do it. Um, But it would, right? This is Jerusalem. This is New York. This is where all the action and the power goes down. This is where the power players live. Um, and they say, you're probably with this guy. You're a loser from the country like he is. Right? You smell like it. You look like it. You, you're probably with this guy. And Peter, who said, I, I'll never deny you, he said, in fact, they're going to kill you. They're going to kill me right up next side, next, next beside you, says, um, he denies it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. Which is interesting. Peter, throughout the gospel, has been the first one to claim to know everything. <laughs> I know who you are. I know what's going on. In fact, I know when you're wrong about something, Jesus. Let me correct you about this. And now, for the first time, Peter <coughs> comes to a point where he is forced to say, I actually don't know. I mean, it's this ironic twist in Peter's character um, as he falls and betrays Jesus. Um, to add to the irony, perhaps Peter's in a way telling the truth here. While he's in the courtyard denying Jesus, it proves that he really doesn't know who Jesus is. He really doesn't know what Jesus was about. That he never really understood it. So while Peter's certainly just saving himself here, perhaps his words ring truer uh, and far more sadder than he would have even realized. And he says, I don't, I don't even know what's, what's going on here. I don't, I don't know the man. Um, this uh, servant girl, however, has a lot of moxie. So he goes out to the gateway of the rooster crows. She sees him and follows him and begins to say to, the, to all the bystanders, Hey, I know, this guy is one of them, right? Again, you, you, you looked like it probably. The clothing he was wearing, the way he was talking, all these things. This guy was one of them. Um, and again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, they're not leaving him alone. Um, they said to him, certainly you're one of them again, for you are Galilean. Um, you had to have come with this guy. Um, all the others have fled. You're still here. You're, you're related to this guy. Peter goes from saying, I don't know even what's going on, to denying he knows Jesus, to now getting more intense. He starts to curse himself and starts to swear. He raises his voice. He pounds on the table. 
Leave me alone. I'm telling you, I don't know this, this man. Let him die. I, don't, I have no association with him. I'm just here to warm myself and, and a cold night. Um, immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, he'll deny me three times, and he broke down and wept. Now a couple of things here. Again, watch Peter go through the trial, um, his own trial, as Jesus is going through his trials. Um, whereas Jesus is able to deny himself to obey the will of the Father, Peter is unable to deny himself. He instead denies Jesus in order to preserve himself. Um, you'll remember one of the two big commandments of discipleship Jesus gave to his followers were to deny yourself and to take up your cross. Jesus, in this passage and in our next passage next Sunday, will do both of these things. He will deny himself, and then he will take up his cross. Um, Peter here is proving that he, at this point, is unable to fulfill the role of discipleship. Um, he denies Jesus in order to save himself in order to cover himself um, in another gospel we're told some more details and we're told that um, what actually made Peter weep was there's a window and so Jesus is inside Peter's on the outside and in this dramatic moment right after the rooster crowed and Peter denied the third time somehow they made eye contact and their eyes locked and you can't forget even though all this has happened Peter was Jesus' best friend you have to think Jesus is maybe, you know, he knows Peter's falling away, but you've got to think it's one of those, like, I wish I was wrong. Like, I hope you proved me wrong tonight and stick by my side. And they make eye contact. And I cannot imagine the emotion and the conversation that takes place in that second and second and a half between Jesus, the one about to die, and Peter, the one about to let him die alone and by himself. The other disciples ran. Peter followed. Perhaps that would have been better if Peter had ran too. Peter follows at a distance, but in so doing, ends up actually falling farther away than the other disciples fell. Um, now this story, um, while it's not mentioned here, is also um, a story of redemption. It's a story of hope for you and I. Um, Mark's readers would have known in the early 60s, 70s, um, that Peter turns out to be the big leader of the early church. Um, that Jesus restores him after he's resurrected. He forgives him. He brings him back in. For Mark's readers and for us, what better example is there um, that we can be forgiven of our sins? Um, even if we deny him completely after we've claimed so wholeheartedly to follow him, um, that there's still redemption left for us. Um, Peter, Paul, Religious terrorists, as in the worst of all sinners. Um, all of these stories, I think, force Christians to create an imagination where redemption is always a possibility. Does that make sense? Where no human being is ever too far gone. I've been privileged in our first service, one of our elders, Bob White, who works with um, some prison ministries. And so, for the last few months, I've been invited. I was able to give a lecture of the Gospel of John. I was able to do a service and, and do kind of regular sermon and communion, get a meal. Um, and I, you know, had a unique experience being pulled out after a lecture, a theological lecture. I was using big boy words. I 
same thing I would have done at university. They invited me to do a lecture and pulled outside of the room and asked questions by a murderer, a convicted murderer. He murdered somebody, he killed them. That's a new thing for me. <laughs> Up to this point, I don't think I'd ever really had an in-depth conversation with a murderer. Um, unless you count kittens, Zach. Um, no, <laughs> Seriously, though, somebody needs to watch what he's doing on the weekends. <laughs> and this man who confessed to being murdered to accept his sentence, probably the only reason he wasn't going to be on death row was because he was so sick um, already. Uh, gave me a new perspective because it was a transformed man it was, I was in the presence of someone who had the Holy Spirit inside of them and there's nothing I could say or do to deny that in fact I kind of walked away being like I wish I was more like that like I wish I was that on fire I wish I was that transformed um Jesus tells us, right, we'll be judged by how we treat children, how we treat prisoners. Um, I think the fact that our Savior was killed by a death penalty, particularly one done out of order, out of place, and the fact that the Christian tradition and story contains countless instances of irreconcilable people being reconciled, means that we need to be very cautious about ever writing anybody off no matter what they've done that's why as a Christian the death penalty is an easy thing for me um, I'm, I'm, all I know is I'm very happy that people like the Apostle Paul did not get the death penalty from Christians they actually welcomed him back into the community he's a religious terrorist and they were like yeah come be a part of our religion um you are not too far. Whatever you've done, I think you've done, or wherever you've been. And when you look at other children, other people made in God's image, as a Christian, I would beg you to develop the imagination to realize that, that no one's too far gone. No matter how evil or disgusting or scary or intimidating, Peter comes back. And he falls and he falls deeply. But I think we can all say that at times in our lives we've not denied ourselves. We've denied Jesus in order to preserve ourselves and our satisfaction, our comfort, our safety. Um, Peter here gives us a negative example and also a hopeful point of reassurance so we know the story. Um, Jesus is the type of person who goes to his best friend who denies him three times and says, hey, I want you back. The only thing keeping you away from being back on the team is you beating yourself up. He says, do you love me? You're like, yeah. Like, no, really, do you love me? It's like, you know I love you, but it doesn't matter. I've screwed it up. It's over. 
Jesus says, no, do you love me? Come on. Am I lecturing you about this? Do I come here to slap your wrist about what happened? I told you in advance it was going to happen, so, you know, it wasn't a surprise. He says, no, come back on the team. It's a beautiful story for us. Um, and then we get the Roman trial, where the, the real action sentencing takes place. As soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him over to Pilate. Pontius Pilate is the Roman governor, prefect of Jerusalem at this time. Um, he was not, by any means, historically the worst person the Jews ever had to deal with. He's not the best, either. Um, what we do know about Pontius is it seems as if he was just a really good politician. Um, Caiaphas, the high priest here, and then Pontius Pilate are both serving in roles that in this era usually <coughs> had a turnover rate of about one or two years. Because it was just so messy. Things always got out of hand and they had to bring in new people. Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate are unique historically in that they serve almost a decade together. No one else is able to do that. So they're able to forge some kind of friendship or alliance and be politically savvy enough to keep the peace for longer than anybody else was able to do so at this point in history. Um, you'll see that Pilate is not a soul to kill Jesus. But do not think that Pilate is Jesus' friend. Pilate is a politician. They don't have friends. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually joking. You know, I have, I have a couple friends who are local politicians. Um, I think it's the national stage that makes that something human just dies. Um, Pilate, though, is not trying to protect Jesus, no matter what it seems like here. Pilate, at every point during this process we're about to read, is, is calculating what will keep the peace, what will keep him in charge the longest without Caesar having to get involved. So, as we read, um, I do want you to notice, though, how many times this phrase, King of the Jews, is mentioned, okay? Um, one scholar says, um, if Mark um, wanted to use the phrase more than he did, I couldn't think of a place where he could have done so. So he's going to saturate the next few verses in chapter 15 with this phrase. And he wants it to be clear, this is why Jesus is dying for this claim. It's a kingdom claim. It's a royal claim. Um, so they delivered him over to Pilate. Pilate just straight up asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers him, not in the same bold way to Caiaphas, in kind of a flippant, you know, you're going to do what you're going to do way. He says, you have said so. In the Greek, he really says, you say. And he says, you know, you're going to make up your mind, right? For Jesus, the game's kind of over at this point, right? I don't think Jesus particularly cares what Pilate thinks. Um, I don't think... I think Jesus is aware what Pilate thinks probably is not going to change anything uh, at the moment. Um, and Jesus certainly has no interest in trying to have this Jewish theological debate about the Messiah with Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? That's what you just said. And the chief priests start accusing him of all these things, and Pilate asked him, why aren't you responding? Again, why are you just sitting there silently? Pilate has this sense that most of these things are trumped up. We'll see this. I mean, Pilate's not an idiot. He realizes this is all kind of phony. Um, he says, see how many charges are bringing against you. And Jesus made no further answer. And Pilate was amazed at the 
And here we have an echo of Isaiah 53, where we're told of a suffering servant who will one day come and who will be led to the slaughter like a lamb. And when his accusers speak against him, he won't open his mouth. And Mark and the Gospels want to make sure we recognize that that suffering servant from Isaiah 53 is this man, Jesus, in front of his accusers. This stoic refusal to even give dignity to the accusations. So much so that it amazed Pilate, right? We all have this HR department in our head. Um, even if you know, even if I knew, right, that the likely conclusion was I wasn't going to be able to change what would happen to me, I'd still be arguing, right? I'd be upset. I'd be heated. Jesus sits there. And I don't think he's sweating, really. I don't think he's fidgeting. Are you thinking of the Jews? He just said so. Are you going to answer anything they've said? And he just looks at them. And God says, this is strange. This is unusual. Um, now at the feast, one of the things Pilate does to keep the peace is he used to release one prisoner for whom they asked. It's an interesting Hunger Games kind of way of um, performing government. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Um, more irony here. Remember, Barabbas actually has done what Jesus is being accused of but has not done. Barabbas has tried to fight Rome, has tried to, to revolt against Rome. He has murdered people, tried to take over um, control from Rome. Jesus has never once supported that agenda. Barabbas, though, will go free, and Jesus will get the punishment for that. There's an irony here. There's an exchange taking place. And Barabbas itself, in the, the Hebrew, bar Abbas, uh, means son of the father, which can't help but be some sort of play on words here. We have here the son of the father, the murderer, and then next to him, the actual son of the father, who's come to bring his kingdom and rescue and salvation. And so there was a man called Barabbas, and the crowd came up and were asking Pilate to do what you just did for him. Hey, give us back one of your prisoners. Um, and he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Yeah, we don't know. Is, is he being sarcastic here with the title? Is he... You know, just using the terms he's familiar with that has been presented to him. Um, it seems like Jesus, again, is, has Pilate on his side. Pilate's trying to get him out of this. Again, though, I would, I would <coughs> caution you. I think Pilate just wants to get out of this situation peacefully. Pilate knows on Sunday all these crowds were cheering for Jesus. And so I think in Pilate's mind... He's going, they probably want him back. Like, they probably don't want these, because Jewish people aren't too happy with their leaders to begin with. So if they're doing something fishy against this guy who's popular with the crowds, they're probably going to want him back. Um, so Pilate's trying to release Jesus. Again, it's not because he's Jesus' friend. They're not bonded somehow. Um, this is cold political calculation. Um, he said, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he had perceived it was all out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. Right? He knows what's happening. Um, but the chief priests, this is where it changed, they stir up the crowd to have him release Barabbas instead. This is where that blasphemy comes in, probably. The 
chief priests are probably able to turn the crowd against Jesus because not only is he now a royal threat to Rome, but he can be accused of the trumped up charge of blasphemy. Um, and we might learn a lesson here, which is to never trust masses, particularly in a mob mentality, particularly with corrupt leaders. If history has taught us one thing, it's taught us that a group of people with one powerful or charismatic corrupt leader can make awful group decisions that are much larger than their individual moral capabilities. Um, this is what's happening here. Same crowd. They shout out. The last time they shouted was Hosanna when they were welcoming Jesus. Now they shout out crucify. Crucify. Pilate against us them. What? Why? What has he done? What evil has he committed to any of you guys? Um, again, Pilate's just wanting to make sure he's doing the right thing here. Um, for a false prophet, Pilate probably would have been very okay to flog him and give him back. For a blasphemer, Pilate would have said, this is not, you're wasting my time. Go talk about these little Jewish things by yourselves. This is none of my business. Um, for a king, Pilate is very willing to crucify him. Um, Pilate particularly doesn't want, even if there's no evidence that Jesus is a rebel king right now, doesn't want two years from now Jesus to lead a revolt and then Caesar to find out that he actually was in a trial with Pilate two years earlier, right? And trial let him go, knowing that he claimed to be the king. Um, he goes, what evil did they do to him? And they just kept shouting, crucify him. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas, scourged Jesus, said, all right, kill him. All right, for Pilate, this is no big deal. He's just making sure he's doing the right thing politically. Delivers Jesus over to be crucified. The soldiers led him away into the palace that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. They clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. <coughs> Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his clothes, uh, and they led him out to crucify him. Now, Mark and most of the Gospels actually do not focus too much on the violence that happens um, to Jesus. It is there to be experienced and to live into. Um, but this is not a screenplay for Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Um, Mark's point here is not to rub your face in gore and in blood. Um, in fact, the crucifixion narrative in Mark is three words. I mean, it's not, he doesn't draw you a picture. He doesn't try to emphasize the physical suffering, things like that. Um, he's reporting history to you. Um, this almost seems, at times, a, a side motive. And perhaps, really, the only reason Mark reports this is because of, again, how ironic some of these things are. Um, what they're doing to Jesus as they beat him and scourge him and strip him naked is they're actually unintentionally being truthful. <coughs> They take his clothes off to shame him. And you see that in modern warfare and torture. And they put on royal garments to make fun of him. And they hail the king of the Jews. They don't know this is actually the king of the Jews. The king of the whole world. It's an ironic, ironic moment. And they put a crown of thorns in his head. And they wouldn't have placed it on lightly. Right? It would have been in his head. 
his crown of thorns. But they don't know that this is the one who will get the crown above all crowns. And they kneel before him and pay homage to him. And they don't know that one day the whole world is going to kneel before this man and pay homage to him. If there was ever a situation <coughs> dripping with irony, it was, it's this one right here. Now, I want to ask one question, and then from there make one point. And, and that's all what we do this, that's all we'll do this morning. The question is this. How is Jesus suffering his trials? And then, spoiler alert, I think we know he's going to be crucified. How, how does this fit in with his kingdom message? Um, we, we often separate the kingdom or the rest of the Gospels from the end of the Gospels, where Jesus dies. Um, so we've been focusing a lot on the kingdom, and I feel like they were a kingdom church. You know, that's our main focus. Jesus' main announcement is the kingdom is coming. Heaven is coming to earth. God wants to make right all the things that have been wrong on earth. And it's going to happen through me and through my ministry. And so when he sees things that are not God's will, he gets rid of them. Sicknesses he heals, sins he forgives, debts he reverses. <coughs> And in this context, we might think Jesus' death here is a sad end to the kingdom ministry. Jesus had so many more people he could have healed. Or we might think that the cross is a detour from his kingdom ministry. It's an unfortunate kind of off-road path that he had to take to get back to his resurrection and his kingdom and his community transforming the world. But what Mark wants us to understand in all the Gospels, and all the scriptures, and Jesus himself throughout the Gospels, is that the cross is not an anomaly for the kingdom of God. He's predicted it all along. Uh, he said, suffering, this is how it comes, suffering. The cross for Jesus is not something that he has to endure in order to get back into his kingdom. And the cross is not something he has to do and wait out in order to be made the king. The cross is paradoxically the way the kingdom comes. And the cross is paradoxically the way that Jesus is made king. The kingdom comes through suffering, through love. The victory that Christ accomplishes, he accomplishes through death. This is why Paul says it makes no sense to anybody. It confounds the rulers of the world. Um, we were talking about this earlier um, outside in the, the foyer, how when people try to persecute Christians, it's very frustrating for them because Christians just grow more and more, right? That's the logic of the kingdom. The kingdom comes through our suffering. And so the world is only used to types of kingdoms that you wipe out through violence and war and persecution. And every other kingdom, it's been very effective in dealing with. But how annoying are these Christians following their leader who picked up on this principle that that's actually how God's kingdom comes? Jesus isn't the king despite the cross. He's the king because of the cross. The cross is his inauguration as the king. His death is what leads to his victory. And until we grasp that point, I think we risk fundamentally separating Jesus' ministry from his 
death. The cross is a kingdom act. It's not an accidental or sideways act. It's the heart of the kingdom itself. God's kingdom is not like kingdoms we're used to. It's not Caesar's kingdom, but more powerful. God's kingdom does not come through force. It does not come through war. It does not come through coercion. It does not come through power. It does not come through legislation. God's kingdom comes like Jesus comes, through patience and love and pursuits and sacrifice. God's kingdom doesn't grow by forcing others to convert or killing them. God's kingdom comes through persuasion and through witness, just letting others see your life and realizing the truth on their own. And God's kingdom, for sure, does not come in a moment. It's 2015. Yeah? Jesus said in 5 BC, or 24, 25 BC, the kingdom was at hand. Um, if Jesus' kingdom was like any other kingdom, it would be here. Everyone who didn't want to be a part of it would just be dead. God's kingdom is patient. I mean, remarkably patient. Because he pursues people. He gives them chances. Just like you see Jesus doing throughout his ministries. God's kingdom comes through, consists of, is characterized by a cruciform nature, taking up of your cross, a denial of yourself, living in self-sacrificial love for others. The cross, the suffering, is the penultimate kingdom action for Jesus. It's not a deviation from the plan. It's not something we should be sad about and think Jesus could have done so much more. Right? He was so young. Um, you have two groups of people, right? People who don't understand why Jesus had to live, why he couldn't have just been born and killed, right? Um, and they think it's kind of all a waste of time. What was those 30 years about? Um, and when they look at the Gospels, they just read the last chapters. And then you have people who just like the Jesus of the first part of the Gospels. He was healing everybody, going around and being transforming the world one person at a time, that kind of thing. Um, and both of them get confused when you try to put together the kingdom of the cross. For some, they're like, what was the point of all that kingdom stuff? We just needed someone to die for us. And then for others, they're like, how sad was that? He has such a great kingdom thing going on. And he got killed. For the Gospels, they're one and the same. This is actually the ultimate action of the kingdom um, coming. This is how God's kingdom will be inaugurated on so from the political meaning, Jesus dying as a rebel king, we find the theological meaning um, that Jesus himself um, is the king, that this is the kind of kingdom he's bringing, that this is how he's inaugurating his kingdom. And from the theological meaning, I think we can find, where we'll close out this morning, a much deeper personal meaning. If we look back at this man, Barabbas, Barabbas, if you'll notice, was let free, and Jesus died for his sins. Jesus was innocent of those sins. We're very used to saying Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died for my sins. Historically, though, Jesus did not die because I lied when I was eight years old and hit my sister from the time of ten years old to yesterday. Uh, <laughs> right? That's not why he died. But theologically, we know that's true. The way that theological theme developed was from history. 
Because literally, Jesus died for the sins of God's people. They wanted to overthrow Rome. He did not. He takes the punishment for himself. Barabbas had already attempted this. And instead of getting the crucifixion, his punishment, Jesus, who's innocent of these things, takes that for him. And what we might call the great exchange, what we are deserving, what Barabbas deserved, Jesus takes on. So we get life and freedom in Jesus' righteousness. In 2 Corinthians 5, we're told, He who knew no sin actually becomes sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We might have his love in us. This fear I have, though, is that for most of us, it's so easy for that statement to be head knowledge and not heart knowledge. To not really get inside of us. So for us to be able to say, Jesus died for me, for my sins, the same way we can say it's cloudy outside. It's kind of just an obvious fact that we're aware of. We don't think our close friends will already hear about us. But, um, instead of, if you might think back to perhaps when you first understood this truth and how powerful it was to you, I mean, remember how motivating that was, how that changed your whole world? He died on, on your part yeah. instead of you. I think there are a couple reasons. There's a couple obstacles we have that keep us from getting it into our heart. And so I'm going to take a quick pass at them, um, and then we'll wrap it up for the morning. Um, the first, I think, is we have a hard time recognizing ourselves as Barabbas. Um, Barabbas is a murderer, and he's a bad dude. And, and, and we're sinners, and we're, we're comfortable, I think, all saying, you know, yeah, I'm a sinner. But most of us are not Barabbas, objectively. And we definitely don't feel like Barabbas. We don't feel like we're evil human beings. Um, for some of us, right, if you didn't have a pastor tell you you were a sinner, you might not even know that you were a sinner, right? You'd look around the world and be like, I'm a really decent human being. Um, and it's to the extent that we don't understand the gravity of our situation outside of Christ that we won't appreciate and have gratitude for our situation in Christ. Does that make sense? The less we can identify with Barabbas, the less we'll be able to appreciate being let free while Jesus dies. Um, the issue, I think, is, in a lot of ways, we've taken theological terms and themes and we've put them into modern categories that aren't necessarily the best way to comprehend them. And, and one of them that we talked about before is sin. And we've taken this idea of sin and we've put it in the legal category. Um, and sin for us is primarily breaking of rule. Um, and unfortunately, too often, it's like uh, uh, you know the speed limit. I was going 85. I got pulled over. It's not a real story. I don't speed. Um, <laughs> and I got a ticket. And I broke a rule. I acknowledge it, right? But I, I'm not going to stay up at night feeling like, oh, man, I'm a bad person. I put myself in danger and humanity in danger and that was just a really awful thing of me to do. Um, to me, and to most of us, I think, naturally and rightly, it's an arbitrary rule set by some weird government official. And I'm sure there's research behind the numbers, but at the end of the day, 85 and 75 are not that life-changing of numbers. Um, so... <coughs> We might think, sure, if we can't control it, we'll have to pay the punishment. But it's not a moral problem, right? It's just an arbitrary rule that we broke. 
And we feel that way, I think, a lot with sin. We don't understand, right? Why can't I do this? Why, why shouldn't I be able to allow to, to participate in this? Why can't I act like this? It just seems arbitrary. And so I can kind of comprehend logically that I broke a rule, but I don't understand the logic behind the rule in the first place. I don't know who made the rule, uh, and it, it and honestly just doesn't mean very much to me. Um, in the scriptures, though, sin, I think, is much better understood as a disease. Um, sin is something that causes death. Sin is something that naturally leads to decay and corruption. It takes away the life that God has given us. Um, when God sees sin, his reaction is sadness. As he sees the life that he's created starting to decay. It's a punishment for sin, right? It's not some legal courtroom where you'll one day have a judge pound a gavel. The punishment is you're going to die. Everything I've given you is going to be taken away from you. Um, it's seen as more of a natural consequence. You might say sin is like a disease or an addiction. It's like meth. You keep doing it, you're going to die. It inherently destroys you. Sin is like a tumor growing inside of you. It's not so important that we identify with the person of Barabbas or the magnitude of his errors as much as we realize the actual nature of sin itself. That apart from Christ... Despite what sins we have or haven't committed, we are all trapped and surrounded in this death grip that will eventually, with jaws of life, pull us out of God's realm, separate us from Him, His goodness, His love, His life. When we understand the gravity, we might have more gratitude. And then that might help us understand what happens on the cross. Another barrier obstacle for some people is, you know, how does this how does this affect me? How does you know, is it just like a legal transaction that's happening here? Jesus takes the punishment for my sins, so I don't have to do it. Um, like is that is that what it is? And and there are legitimate questions perhaps about that kind of understanding of Jesus death, his atonement. Um, does that make the Father and the Son not on the same page? The Father wants to punish, the Son steps in our place. Does that mean God doesn't truly forgive us? I mean, he just pours out his punishment on someone else. Um, what if instead we understood that God, despite his creation, being trapped by sin, consumed by it, going off a cliff into death, had already decided to pursue it. That God, when he made creation, had already decided, I want to bring them into my life. So the ancient theologians, the patristic authors, um, they used to say um, that Jesus would have become a human being whether we had sinned or not. It was always part of the plan. Jesus was going to become a human being, the incarnation, so that he could unite us closer to God. So that he could bring us into the family. We could be adopted as sons and daughters. Whereas creation, there's that separation there. Um, for these theologians, the only thing that changed about God's plan, the incarnation wasn't like a backup, like a, okay, now I guess I have to send my son. The only thing that changed is what the incarnation was going to have to accomplish. For Jesus to join with humanity, he was going to have to take on and accept all that humanity had taken on. Think of a marriage, covenant, 
Women love marriage. When two people get married, they each have baggage and, and problems and past decisions. And, and for a, a significant way, you suffer on part of that other person's stuff, right? I mean, you become one, and that transfers over to you, and you have to bear that. Um, with Jesus, though, it's not like a human marriage where two people bring in problems, right? He comes and joins humanity, and he says, you've got this disease inside of you. You've got this addiction that's going to kill you. Put the needle down and give it to me. Let me open you up and take that tumor out. And I'm going to put it inside of me. And I'm going to let it grow and grow and grow and destroy me until it has no power left. Until the bomb is completely diffused. And then I'll rise again. And you and I will live together forever. There's a movie, 30 Days of Night. It's a vampire movie. Might not be a thing. I'm going to spoil it for you. Um, but I think it's the best example of this great exchange. He who knew no sin became sin for us. In the movie, um, these are like sexy vampires. So it's not like um, the zombies who like... Right, you can fight and they walk slow and stuff like that. These are the guys who like fly and like will take you without you blinking. Right, humans cannot fight against them. And so the premise is there's a city where it goes dark for 30 days. And the vampires go there to around the town for 30 days. Um, so there's there's small group. They've survived. They've got like a few hours left uh, until light comes and they're safe. Um, but there's two or three vampires left, uh, and they know that they're not going to survive until the sun rises. And they have no way of fighting them. You know, they're out of places to hide, and they're out of uh, options to, to stay safe. And the main character, the leader of the group, um, who has been primarily trying to protect his wife, and then also the community, realizes the only way that they're going to survive the night. And so he, he takes a needle draws out some blood from the dead vampire. And before anyone can say anything, he injects himself. And they all kind of look at him and there's this moment of like, what's going on? And he just sits down. And then everyone leaves, his wife sits with them. They've all realized what's about to happen. And they share a couple of moments together as he's starting to transform. And then in the few minutes he has, while he has the vampire abilities, before he's completely turned and can't think straight, he goes and destroys the vampires. Instead of doing though, he destroys himself. He realized the only way to save his bride, to save his community, was to actually take the virus that was killing them all and let it be done to him. And I think that's one of the best cinematic portrayals of the great exchange I've ever seen. This is what Jesus does on the cross. He says, you don't even realize how bad of a situation you were in. Here's what I'm going to do, though. Out of my love for you, out of the Father's love to send me for you, I'm going to put it inside of me. I'll become it. It's going to grow and grow and grow and grow. It's going to do as much damage as it's ever wanted to do to anybody in all of history. 
to me. And then there'll be nothing left. And you'll be free. And we'll live together. I'll take on your sin. You take on my life. You take on my righteousness. For us to, I think, fully follow Christ. Faithfully, obediently. For us, I think, to fully worship him. We've got to make sure, no matter how long we've been a Christian and heard the same things, the truth like this still move us. That they still make us swallow. That they still make us grateful. That they still make us start to rethink who we are, what we're here for, and how we should be living in response to such a gift and such an act of sacrifice on our so this morning, my plea to you is to recognize yourself as Barabbas. And if, if it's hard to do, go into a room and don't leave until you've done it. Seriously. Go somewhere by yourself. And ask God to reveal it to you. him to let you feel it. Ask him to let it motivate you. Ask him to make this truth make your Monday different. The heart of the Christian good news is that Jesus took our place. He was punished. He died for our sins so that you and I wouldn't be. We receive his life. No greater gift no greater exchange and perhaps there's no more powerful event in the world that has the ability to change hearts and transform societies um, than people who realize this and live it out. We very thankful.